The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, how's everybody doing tonight? All right, cool, I'm good. My name's Sam. I am one of the pastors here at Heritage. Just want to welcome you guys. I see a lot of new faces. Assuming some of you guys maybe are, are visiting for Awanas and things like that. So I want to welcome you guys. And uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to jump right in. Father, I thank you so much tonight for your grace. God, I don't say that just because it's a churchy thing to say. Lord, I say that because I truly am thankful tonight, God, that I can stand here uh, before you and uh, be forgiven. And God, I pray tonight for, for very, a very simple and very specific thing, and that is that we would understand the gospel. Lord, tonight that we would be freed uh, from the religion uh, that we put on ourselves, God, freed from the, the, uh, the chain, the yoke that we place on our own shoulders, God. And so would you do that tonight? Holy Spirit, would you make much of Christ in our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I've always kind of had this, uh, this intrigue with mountains. Uh, we live in a very mountainous area, as you guys know. Um, I never just look at mountains and say, oh, there's a hill or there's a mountain. I always look at mountains kind of like they have this big giant question mark looming over the top. And it's like, what's up there, right? Uh, what's up there? And, and, and even more so, how do you get up there? Is there a road to get up there? Is there a trail up there? Uh, there's some cliffs over by Phoenix. I used to live by there, and I, every time I drive past them, I just think, man, I got to get over and climb those cliffs. I just want to check them out. I want to see them. Sometimes I'll just go find a road and just drive until I get to the top of a hill and just get out and look around because it's just so cool. I mean, I remember one time um, going in the, the Marble Mountains and uh, over in, the, in the Etna and Siskiyou County, that area, getting to the top of a mountain and just looking out and just seeing mountain after mountain after. We live in a beautiful place, don't we? I mean, we live in an absolutely beautiful place. But there's something about being on a mountain that's sort of intriguing, something that sort of, at least for me, draws me to it, draws me up. You know, in fact, funny story, I remember uh, when I first moved up here, maybe about six years ago to the Southern Oregon, um, me and my, one of my best friends, Mike, who's here tonight, uh, we, we decided we were going to go hike up Roxanne. Have you guys ever been up Roxanne before? Um, it's kind of like Medford's Hill, you know? Um, we're like, we got to go hike up Roxanne. This is just like something we see every day. Let's go figure it out. So we didn't know if there was a trail. We didn't know if there was a road. Uh, we said, we'll just figure it out as we go. Well, I'm sure there's a trail. There's, there's a road somewhere. So we go out there. We're in East Medford. We're driving around. We're trying to find a trail. We're trying to find a road. Can't find anything. So finally, we're like, you know what? Let's just park uh, as close as we can get and just hike. So we park in front of someone's house down in East Medford. We just start hiking up the hill, right? And it, it's, it's steeper than we thought, and it's higher than we thought, and it's hotter than we thought, and we're wiping sweat away, and we're getting through bushes, and we're just going straight up the face because we're such just men, you know, we're macho. We're going straight up the hill. And what seemed like hours, we finally get to what is almost the top, and I look over, and I see something kind of funny. I see about 10 cars parked. <laughs> Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. If you've driven up there, there's a really nice road that drives all the way up, almost to the top, and then a really nice trail that takes you up to the very top. And so we felt a little silly. You know, we felt a little ridiculous. Uh, here we thought we were, you know, the first ones to ever conquer Mount Roxanne, and it turns out we weren't. So, but we made it to the top, and we sat, and we enjoyed it, and we read some psalms, and it was, it was sort of this fulfilling feeling of conquering. Um, and I was just thinking about this this week as I was preparing for this message. You know, it's, it's not much different than life for me. Uh, I'm, intrigued by, I'm intrigued by mountains, not, not just primarily in, in a physical sense, but I'm intrigued by moving up in life. I'm intrigued by, by um, bettering myself. I'm intrigued by 
um, pursuing heights in life. Let me explain what I mean. I, everything that, that I do in my life usually is to try to ascend in some way, uh, whether it be bettering myself uh, physically or with knowledge or growing as a person or in maturity or wisdom. Everything in my life always is, is, is I'm striving to be higher in life. I'm striving to, to attain to more, to have more clarity, to have more wisdom, sort of like you're climbing a mountain. And this isn't just my desire. This is something that mankind in general uh, desires to better ourselves, to strive to do more, to be smarter, to be wiser. Um, the idea of a utopian society is nothing new to mankind in history. Uh, in fact, if you look back in even Genesis 11, we had the story about uh, the Tower of Babel, right? Uh, they say in Genesis 11:4, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So man, even clear back after the flood, was trying to think, how do we make the most of ourselves? How do we create a society that is better than it's ever been before? It's the idea of the utopian society. So it's the same kind of thinking that the Romans had, the same kind of thinking that ultimately the uh, Nazis had. How do we create a world where everything works the way it's supposed to and everything is perfect? This is the thought. How do we better ourselves? How do we climb the hill? Interestingly enough, in Babel, it's exactly what they were trying to do. They built a tower to try to get to heaven, to try to ascend. So what is it that drives us? Okay, what is it that drives us to that? And it all starts at the garden. I feel like every time I get up here, I do this. We go to the garden, but because we have to, because it makes so much make sense. But it all starts at the garden. This drive for us to uh, attain to bigger things, to better things, all starts in the garden. So man, God made man. Okay, we know this. If you're new to Christianity, God made man. He took the dust of the ground, and he breathed life into that dust. Okay, and he created man out of that dust by breathing some of himself into that dust. That's why we all have a God imprint in our nature. Okay, that's why we all resemble God in specific ways because he invested himself into that dust to make it into a man. It's also why out of the seven billion humans on the earth, we're all sort of similar because we all came from the same origin. We were all created by the same God, came from the same Adam and Eve, from one family line, okay? So God created man out of the dust of the earth, then he placed man. He put man somewhere called the garden, okay? He put man, you guys, you guys have heard this before. This is review. He put man in the garden. Now, the garden was a transcendent place. It was a place of clarity. It was a place of peace. It was a place where you didn't strive, where you didn't have turmoil, where you didn't have to fight for things, where you didn't have to try to climb your way up a ladder. Why? Because God was there. God was with his people in the garden, you didn't have to strive to attain to something because everything that you needed was there in the garden. That was the garden state. So you could say, in a sense, that the garden is very much like being at the top of a hill. I think one of the things that's so intriguing to me about hills is the fact that I can't climb anywhere more once I get to the top. You just enjoy being there, and you have clarity. The garden was like being at the top of the hill with clarity, with transcendence, with um, closeness with God, and then something happened, right? The fall, okay, the fall. And I don't have to explain that too much. You guys know man chose himself over God, ate the forbidden fruit. His eyes were open to uh, good and evil, and the fall was just that. It was a fall. Man went from being on the top of the mountain, so to speak, with God, with clarity, with peace, not having to climb because he had attained to where he needed to be. All of a sudden, man finds himself fallen from that position, 
fallen into thorns and thistles, fallen into hard work and sweat and toil and struggle, falling into a life that seems to not be the way it's supposed to be. Okay? We talked about this in so many of our different biblical worldview topics, but the reason that most of life is so hard is because we belong on top of the mountain with God. And we find ourselves at the bottom of the mountain apart from God, distant from God, having to struggle and having to strive for everything that we do. So what do we do? We climb. We climb. Why? Because we don't belong at the bottom. And we know that we don't belong at the bottom. I'm not just talking about us. I'm talking about every human on the face of the earth. We know we don't belong at the bottom of the hill. This is not the way life was intended to be. We are made and created of eternal matter, and we have eternal longings. And they aren't fulfilled in the temporal We aren't fulfilled being at the bottom of the hill, so we spend our lives pursuing climbing. We spend our lives trying to get back to the way things are. What happened in the garden was the perfect soil for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of religions to be born. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of paths up the hill to be created. Because whenever there's a problem, you have people making solutions. Okay? Everyone knows there's a problem. Everyone knows we're not supposed to be at the bottom of the hill. We're supposed to be at the top. So what does everyone do? They create any possible way to get back to the top of the hill, and this is why we have religion. Okay? We're in a biblical worldview series, for those of you guys that are joining us, and that means that we're trying to look at the world that we live in, the society that we live in, the things that we deal with every day. We're trying to look at them through the lens of the Bible understanding why work is the way work is, why sex is the way sex is, why race is the way race is, talking about things like abortion, talking about things like suffering, and tonight we're going to talk about religion. We were supposed to talk about marriage, but Jeremy just blew it out of the park two weeks in a row on Sunday. Um, If you guys didn't hear those, listen to him on marriage. So um, rather than beat the dead horse, I I wanted to talk about something that I thought um, would have been a better topic. So we're going to talk about religion. And you you guys, if if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're just kind of confused, like, wait a minute, weren't we at church? Don't we talk about religion? Isn't that what we do? I mean, isn't every sermon about religion? Isn't that the point? Well, no, it's not. It's not quite the point. So Let's define religion really quickly, okay? Uh, first of all, you guys got your note cards? Everybody get a note card? If not, let me know. I can, uh, yeah, if everyone's got a note card and everyone has a pen, there should be pens here and there. If not, you can borrow one from your neighbor. Um, but if you have a pen, if you have your note card, we are going to define religion and then we're going to unpack it. So our working definition of religion for tonight is this. So I want you to take your note card at the, at the top of one side of it. doesn't matter which side, they're the same, okay? Uh, if you get the wrong side, it's a big deal, no. Um, wh- whichever side you want. On the top, I want you to write this. Religion is man climbing to God. Religion is man climbing to God. Now I want you to keep that where you can see it. Because this is going to be our point of reference tonight for everything that we talk about, everything that we look at. This is our working definition tonight of religion. Religion is man climbing to God. The dictionary defines religion like this. It says it's a particular system of faith and worship or a pursuit or interest to which someone 
the scribes, okay? A particular system of faith and worship. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw something out there, and it may seem broad-brushing, but I want you to think about this, okay? Every single human being is religious, okay? You're saying, no, I've seen the statistics on Google. It's like 60% of the world, 70% of the world is religious. No, I disagree. Every human being is religious. Now, how can I say that? Because if what the dictionary defines religion as, um, not our working definition, but what the dictionary says, is if it's a system of faith and worship, every human being has a system of faith and a system of worship. Every human being. I don't care if you're the staunch atheist that reads Richard Dawkins' books all day long. You are religious. You have some sort of faith in something. It may be the faith that there is no God, but you have faith. You put your faith in something. You invest yourself through a system in what you think is gonna get you to the top of the hill. Now, everyone has a different idea on what the top of the hill is, like we'll talk about, and everyone has a different idea of how to get to the top of the hill, but the reality is is that we're all religious. Every human is religious. Let me explain a little bit. You guys hear the most common question that usually atheists or anyone really doubting um, that there is a God asks is, you know, how can there be a God if when you look at religion, almost every war that's ever happened was because of religion? Have you guys heard that? Okay, and I, and I would, to, say, to that I would say yes, absolutely, 100%. I stood on the cobblestone of Israel where probably more blood has been shed than anywhere else in the entire world. I stood in Israel where literally Muslims had killed Jews and Jews have killed Christians and Christians have killed Turks and Turks have killed whatever over and over and over and over again all in the name of religion, okay? And you can feel you can feel, you can cut it with a knife, the tension in Israel, in Jerusalem. It's still going. Muslims, Christians, Jews, all killing each other because of religion. I would agree that there has been so much bloodshed, 100%. Now, I would take that even further. I would say, okay, I would say that all bloodshed, all bloodshed caused by man is a result of religion. All bloodshed caused by man is a result of religion. Let me explain what I mean. Everyone, everything from Hitler to abortions is a result of religion. Hitler, didn't you see, wait, wasn't Hitler an atheist? No, he wasn't. Hitler's religion was to get to the top of the hill just like anyone else. The top of the hill for him was creating a utopian society. And he sacrificed six million Jews plus all the other people he murdered to get to his top of the hill. His religion was to attain to this utopian society in which he was in control, and he sacrificed to that religion. So in essence, the bloodshed even of the Holocaust comes back to a religion. Hitler was worshiping. He was worshiping what he thought was going to bring freedom to himself and joy to himself. Abortion is an act of religion. It's a sacrifice to the God of convenience. Your God is, I don't want to have a baby right now, and you sacrifice to that, okay? Now, in this room, if, if you've had an abortion, or if you, we go listen to the one on abortion, because Jeff did a phenomenal teaching on that. I don't want to throw out a statement. I want you to come, come listen to that, because there's so much grace there for that. But my point being is that everything that you do is an act of worship. Everything that you do is climbing 
the hill. And everything that you do is ultimately a religious action. Look at Cain and Abel, okay? The first murder that we see in history, in the book of Genesis, when Cain murders his brother Abel, what's happening there? They both bring a sacrifice to God. One of the sacrifices is not accepted, Cain's, okay? And we'll talk about why here in a little bit. One of the sacrifices is not accepted. So Cain, doing a religious action, trying to sacrifice to God, is rejected. He immediately enters into another religious action, and that is to sacrifice his brother for his own joy. He says, I am, going, I am willing to kill my brother to feel better about my anger in this moment. You see what I'm saying? It's a religious action. Now, not all, religious, not all religion brings bloodshed, okay? Some people's religion is doing good. Some people's religion is helping people. Just to put a little bit more context in this, let me talk about myself, okay? My, my personal struggle with religion um, has started from basically birth, okay? I've been a religious person since I was born, okay? Uh, when I was a little kid, my first religion was called the religion of parent-pleasing. Anyone in here? Uh, the old, usually the oldest child. I wasn't the oldest child, but I was so distant from my brother in age that we were almost both like only children. So my first religion was parent-pleasing, and I sacrificed to the God of my parents being pleased with me. Whatever it took, whatever I had to do to climb that hill, that was my means by which of finding joy, of finding satisfaction. Uh, when I turned 13 or 14, I um, had, was converted from parent-pleasing religion to friends religion. Okay, most of us in high school are in the friends religion. That means that your friends and what they think of you and being cool is God, and you sacrifice anything and everything that it takes including your integrity, including your honesty, in order to get that approval from your friends. That's your God, and that's your religion. And with most religions, you typically demonize the one that you came out of. My parents went from being my God to being my enemy. Now, they were the ones keeping me from my God. Does that make sense? They were the ones keeping me from getting my fulfillment by my friends thinking that I was special. Then when I was 17, I got saved, okay? And you'd think my religion would stop there. Reborn, fell in love with Jesus, believed the gospel, followed God as a disciple, and still religion perseveres in my life. That means that even though I know I'm saved by grace, even though I know that Jesus saved me, every day I wake up and I battle the urge to climb the hill of religion, to attempt to climb to God. What is it now? I wrote it down. It's position. This is my religion now. I struggle constantly with wanting to climb the hill of wanting position, to feel like I have value, like I have worth because I can stand up and preach, because, uh, because of what people think of me, because uh, of what image is, all of these things. Those are, and everyone in here has something. Everyone in here has something that they sacrifice to. Everyone has their means by which to reclimb up the hill, and that's mine. Okay? Now, I want you to think about for the rest of the night, I want you to think about what yours is, and I want you to write it on the back of your card. Okay, so just be thinking about it. Whenever you think about what this is, it may hit you at any point, write it on the back of your card. So that's mine. That's mine. Every Christian in this room struggles with religion. Everyone in this room struggles with attempting to climb back to the top of the hill by some means other than Christ. Now, there's two different kinds of religion people, religious people in the world. There's organized religious people, and there's non-organized religious people. Okay, the non-organized religious people are the agnostics, the atheists, the people that say, oh, I don't really know what I think. You're still religious because you're still sacrificing to something. You just haven't put a name on it. But the majority of people in the world are organized religious people. 
okay? They're organized religious people. Now, why do people like organized religion? Well, first of all, because it's organized religion. Because it's organized, right? You're going to tell me how to get to the top of the mountain, and you're going to give me 10 steps? Perfect. That's the best way to feel like I'm climbing. That's the best way to feel like I'm not stuck in the muck anymore, that I'm getting somewhere. I'm moving forward because he said, if I do these things, then I get there. Okay? Why do people like organized religion? Because people like to be where people are. Why are there 1.2 billion Muslims in the Middle East, in Africa? Because there's 1.2 billion Muslims in the Middle East and Africa. They see everyone on a big road, they're going to follow the big road. If I'm trying to get to a hill, the top of a hill, and there's a trail, a trail with lots of people on it, I'm probably going to think that's the best way to go because everyone's on that trail. That's why Jesus said that wide is the path, right? But narrow is the way, okay? So organized religion, in a lot of ways, people do it because it's the most readily available. It's the most organized. Now, I want to just go through with you guys and explain a few. I didn't want to get bogged down in details. I don't want this to be a... Uh, information transfer to you guys, but I've been studying a lot this week about different religions, and I found it very interesting how similar the majority of religions are, okay? So bear with me on this. The first one I want to look at briefly is Buddhism and Hinduism. There's nothing that Westerners are more confused about than Eastern religion, okay? Nothing. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that I get it, because it's completely confusing. It's kind of like a Picasso painting. Uh, you're like, I think that's something, but I can't tell, and I just keep staring at it. Um, I must have read, I mean, just page after page after page and page and page uh, about Buddhism and Hinduism, and, and it, it's so very confusing because, first of all, it's not really a succinct one religion. It, they don't know who started it. There's no list of this is what we believe. It is encompassed of hundreds of other religions, really, that all kind of come together as one. The crazy thing about Buddhism and Hinduism, and I am clumping them and they are different, but I'm not going to attempt to explain why. They're very similar. Um, first of all, about 1.4 billion people in the world believe in either Hinduism or Buddhism. Okay? There's seven, about 7 billion people in the world. That's a big chunk. We need to understand this thinking. Now, before we can understand this, let me back up. Before we can understand this, you have to ask three questions. For every religion, first of all, who is their God? Second of all, where is the top of the hill for them? In other words, what do they say the top of the hill is? Because it's not the same for every religion. And thirdly, how do they say to get to the top of the hill? Right? How do they say to do it? Those are the three things. So with Buddhism and Hinduism, who is God? In, in, in this religion, basically everything is God. Everything is God. They are um, three things. This is going to be confusing for a minute. Pantheist, monotheist, and polytheist. Pantheism means that they are, everything's God. That chair is God. Mike Daniels is God. Uh, Jesus is God, and uh, Buddha is God. We're all God. Everything is God. It's all sort of one giant. That's pantheism. They're also, at the same time, polytheists, which means there's lots of different gods. Like, they worship all kinds of different gods. God manifests himself in all kinds of different ways. And lastly, they're monotheists, which means that God is just one. Confused yet? Okay. Nothing more confusing than Eastern religion. Um, so, everything is essentially God. So that, that is their God. What's the top of the hill for them? The top of the hill is this. It's, it's not going to heaven. It's not being resurrected like some of the other religions we're more, we're more uh, used to. For them, the top of the hill is actually a thing called nirvana in Buddhism specifically. It's called nirvana. That's looking within long enough to achieve a state where you realize that you don't exist. And you realize that you no longer have any desires or needs, and you are instantly happy. 
Okay? Now, just so you guys know, in case you're thinking about joining these religions, it takes approximately, they believe, 900,000 years of being reincarnated to achieve this state. Okay? If that's too long, then there's a thing called Zen Buddhism, which is our um, super lazy Western version, which means you can just do it in one lifetime if you do enough yoga. Um, that's probably more what I would go for, you know. Um, but the real deal is like 900,000 years of being reincarnated. That's a lot of being reincarnated. Now, if you, uh, how do you get to the top of the hill? That's the question. If you are good and you do good karma, you guys heard that thrown around in Ashland a lot. Um, if you, I see, one time I was there buying some guitar strings and this girl was like, hey, can I borrow a dollar? And my buddy was like, yeah. And she was all, karma, bro, you know. And we're like, what is that, caramel? What? Caramel? <laughs> Are you going to give us a caramel? Um, yeah, anyways, that's, it's real big over there. So karma basically is if you do good, then good is done to you. If you do bad, then bad is done to you. Now, depending on how good or bad you do determines what you are reincarnated as in your next life. So if you're a really bad person, you're coming back as a cat. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're a really good person, then you come back as, you know, I, I, I'm not, Oprah Winfrey or something like that in their religion. Uh, you know, you, you come back as something that's a higher and closer state to being in this state of nirvana. So, how do you get there? They have these eight, it's called the middle way in Buddhism. It's called these eight things that you basically have to do. You ready for this? Tell me if you notice a theme as I read these, okay? In order to achieve karma, I'm not, sorry, not karma. In, in order to achieve the state of nirvana, you have to have a right viewpoint, a right aspiration, right speech, right behavior, right occupation, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. That's the trail to the top of the hill. Sounds really hard. Sounds like it takes 900,000 years of being reincarnated to achieve, okay? So, conclusion of this religion is that if you do everything right, after a long time, you might get to the top of the hill and then realize that there really is no hill, which is the funny part, and realize that you're God. Oh, whew. Okay, I, I hate to make that sound stupid because I'll be honest, it's a complex religion, um, but I'm trying to keep it as simple as we can. Uh, the next thing is Islam, okay? 1.2 billion people in the world live, uh, believe in Islam. This is a big Religion. We hear about them on the news a lot, obviously, because certain parts of Islam are pretty radical. Islam is monotheist. One, monotheism, okay? They, are, they believe in one God. They believe that we are polytheists because of the Trinity. They just don't understand it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they must be polytheists, but we're not, okay? Um, but they're monotheists. They, they, they believe in one God. Um, their source of truth comes from the Quran, from the prophet Muhammad, um, what's their top of the hill? How, wh wh where are they trying to go? They're trying to get, similar to what we believe, to heaven. They're trying to get to paradise. Uh, they believe that their God, Allah, is going to come back and resurrect them and take them to paradise, different levels of that, I should say. Now, the interesting th thing about Islam, how do you get to the top of the hill? How do you get to the top of the hill? Basically this, at the end of your life, you will stand before Allah and he will weigh out, he has a giant scale, and he will weigh out your good and your bad, okay? They don't believe in original sin. If you're new to Christianity, what that means is they don't believe that we're sinners from birth. They actually believe that you start out as a good person, and then you make the choices, and then you pay for those choices. Now, God is merciful, but the idea of grace, there's no room for it. They believe that we actually are a weak country because we come out of a thinking that we need grace and that we are sinners. They think they're stronger for the fact that they don't need grace. They fix themselves. They do it themselves. 
So how do they get up the hill? They have the five pillars. You know this theme here? Every religion has like, just do these five, just do these eight, just do these 12, and you're there. You're up at the top, okay? A little easier than Buddhism because they only have five. I mean, Buddhism has eight. Um, five, here they are. Reciting the Shahada, which is, you've heard it, there is one God but Allah, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Number two, praying five times a day towards Mecca. Application for this week, we are all going to pray five times a day towards, I'm just kidding. Um, just, that was a joke. Uh, three, gi- <laughs> giving alms to the poor. Four, fasting during Ramadan. Five, taking a pilgrimage to Mecca. If you do those five things, primarily, then God may have mercy on you and you get to be in paradise. So conclusion, be good, try hard, do your best. Be a good Muslim, climb the hill hard. When your legs get tired, climb harder. When your forehead is sweating, climb harder. When you get lost, climb harder because it's on your shoulders to get to the top of the hill. Lastly, Christendom. What is Christendom? Uh, I'm using the word Christendom because I don't want to have to explain why I'm saying Christianity in a negative sense, okay? Uh, There's 2.2 Christians in the world, 2.2 billion, sorry, Uh, 2.2 billion Christians in the world, and you have to understand that not all of those are Christians, okay? That is a junk drawer for all kinds of different ideas of Christianity, different kinds of ideologies of Christianity. Um, Who is God to Christendom? Okay, so I'm going to talk about some of the false views of Christianity. Who is God? Um, Some would say, many in this country would say, that God is someone who you add to your life. Okay, God is sort of a part of our life, uh, something that makes us better people by having some sort of belief system. Um, God to many in Christendom is someone who exists to serve you, sort of a proverbial genie that you rub the lamp and he comes out and helps you when you're stuck, uh, when your carabiner breaks and you're rock climbing and you're falling down the hill, uh, when you really want that car, when your marriage is in trouble, um, sort of this genie kind of idea. Um, Some people think of God in Christendom as sort of this big bully in the sky that hates you and doesn't really like you, but he's stuck with you, so if you're a good enough person, you might get into heaven. Uh, What's the top of the hill for a lot of people in Christendom? Uh, Heaven. Um, Unfortunately, not an idea of being with God and enjoying God forever, but more of just an idea of not having to go to hell. Um, The top of the hill for a lot of people in Christendom is having an easy life because you're a moral person. Okay? Um, So my life is is roses because I do the good things and and the right things. Um, How do a lot of people in Christendom get to the top of the hill? Uh, Well, maybe by praying a prayer. Um, maybe by having Christian parents. Um, if this sounds absurd, it's not. I've talked to a lot of people that thought they were Christians for these reasons. Um, because you go to church, because uh, you checked the Christian box on um, your application, on your MySpace, on your Facebook. MySpace. Uh, no one uses MySpace. That was the last time I was in a social media. Um, because you were baptized as an infant. Whatever it is, there's, there's a litany of things that people think got them to the top of the hill, but ultimately, it's just not true. Um, Ultimately, Christendom is this. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism, to borrow the phrase. What that basically means is moralistic, that it's all about behavior. It's not about heart change. It's about behavior. It's about getting our kids to do the right thing. It's about being good people. Therapeutic means it makes us feel good about ourselves, okay? If I go to church, I feel good about myself. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Jeremy and I went to Catholic Mass this morning just for fun because we wanted to check it out. Um, Never been to Catholic Mass before. Um, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It was so 
boring. Uh, I thought I was going to go to sleep, but it was interesting. And I walked out, and I kind of felt good about myself, you know? Like, I went to Mass. And I could see how easily that could become something um, that, that could sort of be this, like, you know what? I feel good. It's just therapeutic. It's therapeutic. I went and did something. Um, you know, you know I, it's just therapeutic. It's moralistic. And it's deism, so it's a god. That's a lot of what Christianity is in our country and Christendom across the world. So, review, and then we're going to move on. Everybody still with me? Yeah, I know this is an information dump. I didn't want it to be that. Review, uh, man is broken and knows it, okay? We're at the bottom of the hill. We're stuck at the bottom. We're trying to get up. Religion is what? Religion is what? It's on your card. Good job. Let's try it one time. Religion is what? Thank you. Religion is man climbing to God. No one is capable of climbing to God. So, what is the cure? How do we get to the top? We've just talked about all the ways that you don't. All the ways that you don't. And more importantly, not more importantly, but more specifically to our topic, what sets true Christianity apart from other religions? Because if you haven't asked this question, you have to know what sets Christianity apart. You have to not just know it, but you have to know that you know that you know that you know it. Because one of the biggest devices that the enemy is using in our country right now is thinking called universalism. Okay, and it's called a lot of other things. But it basically is the thinking that you can believe in whatever you want. That God doesn't really care what you call him. That God doesn't really care who you think he is. And God doesn't really care how you live or, or, or what your faith looks like. That he only cares that you just have faith, nebulous faith. Okay, people like Oprah Winfrey uh, are huge on this. Deepak Chakra, all these people that are huge in our country, in our culture, are telling you it doesn't matter. We have to understand what the difference is between Christianity and every other religion in the world. We have to understand it, okay? We have to understand it. So what is it? Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he, he, he basically wrote a book, book talking about, uh, about why we need God, kind of a lot of what we're talking about tonight. And he, he has a, a section in there where he, he talks about a love relationship. He basically says that any love relationship... Any healthy love relationship, and follow me on this, I know they're loud out there, they're having fun. Um, any love relationship, any healthy love relationship has to have mutual loss of dependence. Okay, what that means is that when I married my wife, um, I gave some of myself, she gave some of herself. We both changed, we both were willing to adapt to each other's lifestyle. I leave the seat up, she leaves the seat down. Okay. Um, you know, I use her razors and dole them, and, and she uses my shirts to sleep in. You know, I mean, it's this, this is some of the give and take that, that we have. And, and in order to have a real relationship, here I am doing this again. Um, I don't know if you guys were here for that teaching, sorry. Um, <laughs> inside, inside joke. Um, <laughs> in order to have a healthy relationship, there has to be give and take. Both sides must say to each other, I will adjust to you. I will change to you. Now, and in the book, he says, he makes this point. He says, at first sight, a relationship with God seems inherently dehumanizing. Surely it will have to be one way, God's way. God is the divine being, has all the power. I must adjust to God. So there's no way that God could adjust to serve me. In other words, if that's what a relationship looks like, then a relationship with God is going to be all me adjusting to him and no him adjusting to me. It seems sort of, as he says, inhumanizing, dehumanizing. 
Now, while this may be true of other forms of religions, now listen, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. Don't miss this. While this may be true in other forms of religion and belief in God, it is not true in Christianity. He says, in the most radical way, God has adjusted to us in his incarnation and atonement. Let me explain what that means. That means that God does not sit on the top of the hill watching you sweat and toil, and strive, and fight, and struggle, finding and trying every path possible to get to him while he sits and watches you and waits to judge you. That is not the relationship that we have with God. He gets off his throne, and he climbs down the hill, and he steps into the muck, and the mire, and the filth of your sin, and of my sin, and he steps out of his deity, out of his eternality, out of his comfort, out of his glory, out of his power, and steps into skin that cuts and bleeds and bones that break and shatter and subjects himself to pain like you and I feel and subjects himself to temptation, subjects himself to his friends, abandoning him and denying him three times, subjects himself to man's worst possible form of murder, crucifixion, subjects himself to nails in his hands and in his feet and his head being pierced. The God of the universe, the star breather that all he had to do is snap his fingers and everyone would be dead, subjected himself to pain subjected himself to everything and more that you and I feel, that you and I struggle. He climbs down the hill. Do you get that? He climbs down the hill. What a relationship that we have with our God. And he did it while we were yet sinners. He didn't do it because you did something. He did it before you were even born. When he knew that she would throw dirt in his face and curse his name. He did it for us. Not only does he come down, not only does he come down the mountain, he carries us up the mountain. See, religion, look at your card, religion is man climbing to God. If you have your pens underneath, I want you to write this. The gospel is God coming to man. The gospel is God coming to man. I tried to make this as simple with the least amount of words because I want you guys to remember this. When you want to know what the difference between Christianity and every other religion is this, religion is man climbing to God, but the gospel, the good news, is God coming to man. He came to us. This is Christianity's primary distinctive. Religion rests on our shoulders. The gospel is on Christ's. He climbs the hill. He takes us up the hill. In the Old Testament, there's a really interesting story in the book of Genesis where Abraham, um, the first Jew, right, um, God enters into covenant with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you kids as many as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to multiply your generations, and your nation's going to be great, and all of these promises, these fantastic promises called the Abrahamic covenant. One thing you need to know about this covenant, follow me, is it was an unconditional covenant. Okay? That means that it didn't matter what Abraham did. 
It was an unconditional covenant. And so Abraham says, okay, Lord, how do I know that this is going to happen? How can you prove it to me? God says, do this. Take certain specific animals, and it sounds morbid, but cut them in half and lay them on either side. Now, this was a way of establishing a covenant. What you would do is both parties would walk through the center of those animals and would establish a covenant. So Abraham says, okay, he does it. Splits the animals, and then God puts them to sleep. Okay? And then in the middle of the night, it says a light comes and passes through the middle of the animals. What is that about? You see, God knew he couldn't enter into covenant with Abraham. He, he could, but Abraham would break it. And a covenant by nature is contractual. That means if one person breaks it, it nullifies, right? An unconditional covenant means that no matter what one person does, the covenant is not broken. What God did in that moment is exactly what he did on the cross. He said, Abraham, I'm not gonna enter into covenant with you because I know you. I'm gonna enter into covenant with myself. God says, I can't, I can't rely on anyone to climb the hill because no one can and no one will. So I'm gonna come down myself and through Christ, I am going to make covenant with myself. That's what happened on the cross. That's what God did. And then freely gave it to you and I. I talked about Cain and Abel in the beginning. Just one more example. Cain and Abel, right? They both bring these sacrifices to God and yet one is rejected and one isn't. You ever thought about that? Was it because Abel was more spiritual? Was it because Abel's sacrifice was better? Was it because, what was Cain's sacrifice? He brought the work of the field. He brought what he had plowed, what he had made. He said, here it is, Lord, here's my sacrifice. Abel brought what? A lamb. It's not that, that Abel's sacrifice was better. It's that Abel's sacrifice pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, and that's Jesus. See, God's not interested in the work of your hands. He's just not. God's not interested at your attempts to climb the hill. He's not interested in your religion. He's not interested in how good you can behave in order to get to the top of the hill. He doesn't care about that any more than he cares about Cain's offering. He cares about his son and what you do with him. Because his son is whom he entered into covenant with. His son is whom he entered into covenant with. That's what he cares about. So, so what, right? So what? What now? Now what? I was um, studying for this uh, Tuesday uh, morning, and I spent quite a few hours just really thinking through different religions and all these different things, and, and I was thinking, man, Lord, I just really need a story out of, this, out of the Gospels. Just, I want to see Jesus um, model this. I want to see some kind of a, you know, just a story that I can sink my teeth into and share with everybody. And I flip on the radio as I'm driving home and I'm listening to a preacher um, talk on there and he uh, brings up this story about how when Jesus came to call the disciples, okay? You guys might know the story, right? Um, Jesus is preaching, the multitudes come in and crowd around, and um, there's a couple of empty fishing boats, so Jesus says, I'm going to use uh, the ancient day microphone. I'm going to go pop into one of these boats, I'm going to sail offshore a little bit, and I'm going to continue to preach. The water would sort of carry the sound of his voice, and he preaches, and there's people everywhere, and meanwhile, there's two fishermen over there cleaning their nets. Okay, why are their boats empty? Why are they cleaning their nets? Because they're done for the day, and they had a horrible day. They fished all day long. Now, they got nothing. 
that caught nothing. Now, I totally get that because I'm that guy. Every time I go fishing, which is not very often, other than when I went ocean fishing, that was different. Um, every single time I go fishing, I catch nothing. It drives me crazy. And if I had a dollar for every guy, like Jeff or whoever, that's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to take you to the place, and I'm going to give you the right pole, and I'm going to put the right fly on, and I'm going to put the right whatever, and we're going to take you out of my boat, and we're going to troll, and we're going to blow. Everyone tells me about how we're going to go catch fish. And I get out there, and 12 hours later, after I'm bored out of my mind, we catch nothing. And they say, oh, it's weird. It never happens. It's it's because I'm that guy, you know? So I get this, but they are professionals, okay? I'm not a professional fisherman by any means, okay? I'm not a professional. They are professionals, so they know what they're doing. They know where to put their nets in the water. They know where to take their boat. They know how to throw them. They have the right gear. They have the right finesse. Their dad fish, their dad's dad fish, their dad's dad fish. This is something that they've always done. They know what they're doing, and they've had a crummy day. They've been out all day. They're tired. Their backs hurt. They want to go home and eat. They have nothing to bring home. This is their profession. This is what they do. And here's Jesus. And he calls out to him. He says, hey, push your boats back out and go fish again. Can you imagine this Galilean carpenter, this rabbi? What, what are you talking about? No, go do it. Just go push out and throw your, throw your nets in. <laughs> and it'd be like me going up to a professional fisherman who just had been fishing all day and say, hey, I know you just casted right there, but hey, cast right there, like five inches to the left. And just like, who do you think you are? What do you know about anything? But they did it. They push out. And, and they cast their nets out. And you guys know the story, right? And they just can barely heave the nets in. They can't believe it. Their hearts raced. They never caught fish like this before. I mean, Galilee's like a lake. You don't catch that kind of fish. I mean, this is like insane. They're pulling it. They have to pull more boats and get their friends out there to help them get this giant hull. And they're just blown away. So I'm listening to the radio. And this guy's talking about the story. And, uh, and he says, see, this is a perfect example of when things are going bad, whether it be in your marriage or in your life or whatever, and, and you've gone out for 12 hours, you just need to go out for another hour. You just need to throw your nets again. You need to keep trying. You need to keep going for it. And I'm sitting there screaming at my radio, that's not the gospel. That's religion. Stop. <laughs> no. Because in my head, I'm sitting here thinking, what an amazing picture of the gospel. They can't catch anything. And then Jesus shows up, and they kill it. Was it because they threw their nets 15 times instead of 14? It was because Jesus showed up. It's because he's the difference maker. It's because when Jesus is in the equation, everything's better. It's like when the storm arose in the boat. And they don't know what to do, and they're freaking out. And here comes Jesus walking on the water, and he climbs in the boat, and it says the storm ceased. Why? Because he was in the boat. Because he was the difference maker. Okay? Religion would to look, to look at that story and say, yeah, see, just throw your nets one more time. Just keep trying. No! Stop climbing! Jesus is what you need. Get him in the boat. He is the difference maker. He is the point. First Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Fast forward the clock, three years. The disciples have been through crazy stuff with Jesus. Man, they got stories like you wouldn't believe. He's raised the dead. He's healed crippled hands. 
He's cleansed lepers. He's fought with the Pharisees. They've walked with him through all out Galilee. They finally came to Jerusalem and the unthinkable happened, right? Their difference maker, the one that things happened when he was with them, is arrested. And then not only is he arrested, he's tried illegally and murdered. What do we do now? I mean, when Jesus was here, things happened, and now Jesus is gone. I mean, you remember the story when they went up the hill and Jesus transfigured and some of his disciples were at the bottom and somebody brought a demon-possessed boy and they couldn't do anything about it. Jesus came down, they're like, your disciples couldn't do anything because they need you. They can't do anything without you, right? And so now he's gone and now they're depressed and they don't know what to do. They don't know what's going on. They weren't listening when he said he'd come back. So they're freaking out. They're bummed. They're depressed. What do you want to do? Let's go fish. It's what we do. That's what we did before Jesus came along and turned our world upside down. I mean, let's go back and do what we used to do. Let's go fish. And so in the book of John, there's a very similar account where they're fishing. And then all of a sudden, they hear a voice cry out. And they're not catching anything, by the way. (laughs) Similar. They hear a voice cry out, and sort of almost like an inside joke. How's the fishing? And it's Jesus. Cast your nets on the other side. It just shows like this enduring side of Jesus where he, he almost pulled on this, like, this inside joke. Hey, guys, remember the fishing stinks when I'm not here. You know, how is it? How is it going back to what you used to do? How is it? It's better when I'm here. And sure enough, you know, they catch fish and they come and they, they catch up with Jesus and, and, and they see him in his resurrected body and it's just it's this amazing reunion of friends. What's the point of that? The point of that is just don't go back Man, you guys were saved because in a moment you were overwhelmed by the power of the gospel. You were overwhelmed that God wasn't sitting at the top of the hill like a tyrant saying, come on. That God came down and climbed into the garbage you were living in and pulled you out. That's what you got saved. That's what made you get saved. That's what made your heart beat out of your chest when you stood up or when you prayed or when you got baptized was the fact that God would come down the hill. Now don't go climb the hill again. Don't do that. If you do, Jesus might tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, how's the fishing? How's it working out for you? Not very well, right? I'll close with this, you know. So what? So what do we do with that, you know? Stop being religious. (laughs) Stop being religious. How do we do that? Here's the tricky part, and you guys have heard me say this before. Um, I love last words of people. It's really interesting. Um, We'll look at a few, but, but the last words of Peter, the apostle, Peter, foot in mouth, Peter, Peter say everything wrong, Peter, Peter always being that guy, you know, that guy. Um, that was Peter. And his last words in his epistle that we have recorded at least are not what you think they would be. They're not what you think they would be. Let me contrast them with this, first of all. What did the Buddha say before he died? This is the last words of the Buddha. He said, behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. And listen, work hard to gain your own salvation. Work hard. This is the Buddha's last words. Work hard. Climb harder. Don't care if your legs are tired. Climb harder. Get to the top. Okay, now contrast that with the words, first of all, of Peter. He said this. This is what Peter said. He didn't say, pray more, fast more, go to church more, give more. Those are all the good, really good things. You know what he said? He said, grow in grace. 
He said, grow in grace and in the knowledge of him and to God be the glory forever and ever, amen. Grow in grace. How do you do that? That's like a non-action, right? It's like a hurry up and don't go anywhere. Like what? Take a step by not moving. I mean, what does that mean? Grow in grace? It's a non-action because it's not a do, it's a belief. It's not a do, it's an understand. See, Peter wasn't concerned about climb harder, try harder, add a few more rules. Peter was concerned about an understanding of the most important thing, and that is the grace of God. Grow in grace. That's all he cared about. Because when you grow in grace, everything else will follow. You know what Jesus' last words were? According to one account, he said, behold, I will be with you, right? I'll be with you going anywhere. I'm sending my Holy Spirit. It's going to live inside of you. I'm not leaving you to do this thing on your own. I'm not bailing out on you. I'm sending you the Spirit. The book of Acts is right around the corner. Guess what? Things are coming. Things are going to happen. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm in you. Okay? Those are the last words of our Lord. Now go try harder. He did say go make disciples, but we make disciples when we realize that we are saved by grace, right? That's good news. So my plea for you guys tonight is simply this, that you would repent, that I would repent of our religion, understanding now the word of it. And that we stop climbing the mountain and realize that Jesus is at the bottom with us, in the midst. And then we would go get others that are at the bottom as well. That's my prayer. So this, everyone's got it filled out? Okay, what's your religion? Put this on your fridge, Okay. I want you to think about this every day when you go stuff your pie hole, okay? For lack of a better <laughs> vernacular. Whenever you go eat, whenever you get breakfast, lunch, whatever, think about this. Think about this. Am I being religious? What does my life consist of? Am I living and growing in the grace of God? I just wanted some kind of a tangible reminder for you guys to be able to think through this in the weeks to come. So I'm gonna pray really quick and then we'll see if we have any questions um, Father, thank you so much for how you save. Oh, Lord, how you save. God, thank you so much for how you climb down the mountain. Lord, no religion can say that their God has died for them, that their God became man and gave up position. Lord, humility is the very roots of, our, of, of what we believe, God. Humility is what, what you um, built the gospel on, that, that God, that you would become man. I just pray you would impress that on our hearts, Lord, that we would live out of that, Father. And we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, did we get any questions? Just one? Okay. How do we keep things like church, communion, and prayer from becoming religious acts? I'm so glad you asked because it's exactly what I was thinking this morning at Catholic Mass. Okay, and let me clarify, I'm not saying Catholics aren't Christians because I think a lot of them are. But I was sitting there and I was watching this go on. First of all, it was super awkward because I didn't know anything. I didn't know what to do. Um, the guy, you know, um, had like an accent that was really strong, like Italian or something, and I didn't know what he was saying. And, and they never said like, hey, let's stand and hey, open up your book. It's the green one, you know, page 15. It was just kind of like everyone knew what to do and I didn't know, you know, and everyone started repeating and everyone started reciting and everyone went into communion and I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's a cool building. Um, twiddling my thumbs, you know, there was no bathroom too, that was hard, um, to find a bathroom, no bathroom, um, and so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about this in my head, like, you know, I'm looking around, and I, I see people that are actually weeping, which I think is rad, 
I mean, for some people in there, this was like a genuine, this was a moment with the Lord, you know, this was a time where they could be with Jesus, and, and, then, and then I looked around too, and I, I saw a lot of people that looked like they were just kind of going through the motion, which we see that everywhere, you see that at Heritage, you see that at any church, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, how do you avoid this, and I think what you have to think about is that oftentimes things that used to draw us to God become God, does that make sense? Things that used to draw us to God become God. So that church that you got saved at that has the rad building and the facility and, and the worship team that plays and the, the pastor that clarified the gospel for you and those are all really good things and then very quickly those can go from being things that draw you to God to being your God. I have to have those. I need those. Only that guy can teach me. Only that church. I, that's the only thing right there. That's the only. And I think that's very much in some ways what happened in Catholicism. The, the things that used to draw people to God over years and years and years of getting dusty um, and not being shaken up and the dregs not being stirred um, became God. So when we went to Israel and Jerusalem and you stand in these giant churches, you feel like they're worshiping the church. I mean, women, you know, rubbing their uh, garments on the place that Jesus was supposedly crucified um, in order to receive some sort of blessing. It's like they're worshiping a place. And a place that could have very special value and simply in the fact that it points to Jesus has become Jesus, has become God. So I think, first of all, we have to hold very, very loosely and minimally the things that draw us to God. Um, if you took, I've asked this question before, like if you took away everything Christian in your life, what would your walk with God like? like? What I mean by that is if you took away your Christian friends, you took away your church, you took away all your Bibles, you took away all your Christian music, all your Christian movies or whatever, you no Christian radio, no Christians around you, you lost everything that helps you to be close to the Lord, what would your walk look like? What would it look like? What would be left? A lot of times, a lot of my walk is built on study. It's built on thinking. It's built on theology. It's not so much built on as much as I need, to, need it to be more of a, a real and personal relationship with God. If you strip all that away, what do you have left? And I think those are the things we need to emphasize. Not so much the things that get us to Jesus, but more of Jesus himself. Does that help? Does that make sense? Was that it? Was that the last one? Okay, cool. Man, we keep getting done early. I need to talk longer. Um, so... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something, okay? I have a yes, hit me, okay. I know it's going to be good, because I know you. I'm probably not going to be able to answer it. That is a good question. Oh, two? You're going to hit me with two? Okay. The follow-up question for that is, what really then makes a Christian, I, I think? Like, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'll let you attempt this. You're not going to like my answer, I don't think. You're not going to like my answer. But, um, so just for the, for the podcast or whatever, um, he's basically asking, you know, if, if the gospel is not that we climb the mountain, but that God comes down, then wouldn't, um, responding to the call of God sort of in a sense be call be, be responding to that. This is the question that the, the question of um, of Calvinism and Arminianism which I don't want to get bogged down in okay but it, re it really is I mean this is this is in essence because what, what you're asking is 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 man in any way responsible for his own salvation if God calls you and I respond then in a sense I am 
responsible for my own salvation. Um, so Arminians would say that, that, that God calls and we answer and, and we have some level of sovereignty in that. Calvinists would say we have no level of sovereignty that God saves from beginning to end. And so the answer that heritage officially stands on is we don't know. Like, we just don't know. Because the Bible seems to say that God saves before what? The foundations of the earth. Before you and I even breathed, God had saved us, which seems pretty implicit that we didn't do anything about it. Um, It also says that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, Did dead people raise hands? Did dead people pray prayers? Did dead people seek God? No, they don't. They're dead, right? Um, And and obviously talking about spiritual deadness there. Um, But then at the same time, the Bible seems to use language that talks about calling people and choose you this day whom you serve and and all of these different language that seem to to give man some sort of responsibility. So I've talked about this like so much and I never get anywhere. Um, All I know is, and and this isn't downplaying your question because it's the the question, right? How so? Because if we, if we can say that we our response is, that our response is unimportant and such, yeah. then it seems hard to close the door on you. I wouldn't say it's unimportant. I wouldn't say our response isn't unimportant. Um, I, I think it is, and here's, and here's my point, is, is I think that the, it's not an if or, it's a both and. I think that the Bible really does say both. It sounds like a cop-out, I know it totally does, but I really think the Bible says both. I think that in some degree, in, 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 in a very large degree, God is sovereign, um, but the Bible seems to, from my perspective at least, give some measure of man making decision. I don't know how that works. Here's my theory, okay? Here's my theory, is that there's things that we view from our lens and things that we, that we try to view from God's lens. You can't understand things from God's perspective. Why? Because your brain is this big, and it has a beginning and it has an end. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. So how do you cram an eternal-sized God into a brain, that's, mine's probably smaller than that, uh, you know, how do you cram an eternal size God? You just don't. So the, the idea of salvation and how God works within salvation is one of the most complex things I think that we read about in the Bible. I mean, how God saves, that he would do it before the foundation. Think about this one. Christ slain before the foundations of the earth. But wait a minute. Wasn't it in zero B, or 30 AD? It doesn't make any sense because God's time is outside of ours. So how do we understand something that is eternal size? So I think that God used vernacular in the scriptures that allow us to get our heads around salvation, um, and, and that is that we choose, okay? And so a lot of times, that's how we think about it, okay? Um, but I think in God's economy, in God's perspective, in a lot of ways, he's so much bigger than just me making a choice. But how could I possibly understand that. And, and scholars have debated and debated and debated and debated on this much smarter than I am um, for a long time. And, and really, honestly, the only place I can park it to have any rest on it at the end of the day is, is I don't get it. But I love this saying, um, is live like an Arminian, but sleep like a Calvinist. And what that means is that, that, that we need to choose every day to, to follow Jesus. Um, but I have peop- I've seen people wrecked by the fear of losing their salvation. Because if you gain your salvation, then you can lose it. If you can walk to God, then you can walk away from God. And I personally don't believe you can. I think if you're saved, you're saved. God will reach down no matter where you are, no matter how far down you are, and pull you back to himself. And so I think we should live like Arminius. Yes, we choose God. Sleep like Calvinists at night. Um, and somehow there's, there's healthy tension in that um, that we should live in. And um, I'm going to cut you guys loose. And we should talk more, though. I want to get coffee. I really do, because I... It's a good, good conversation. Um, but yeah, guys, go enjoy. Um, watch your kids scream. And for those of you that are new, thanks. Welcome. We'll maybe see you next week.